You okay? Okay. Dan was supposed to have gone home today. He was. Uh, I talked to him about noon, and his ride was on the way to pick him up, take him home. And uh, today was not the, one of his better days. Felt like a Mack truck ran over him this morning. But that's to be, I guess, expected when you've gone through surgery like that. But overall, everyone is very impressed with his rapid recovery and how well he's doing. I tried calling him before I came uh, this evening to see if he had heard the pathology report because that was due in today. And uh, did not. he wasn't either in or he was sleeping through the phone ringing. One or the other. So we need to continue to pray for his recovery. Second announcement has to do with the travel. If you're interested in that, let me know. If you want to sign up on that, let me know. Let's kind of get that pulled together fairly rapidly and not drag it out. And then third, I heard while I was doing something, I think I heard on the television that this Sunday is spring forward. Okay. So that means we, we lose an hour of sleep now? This is the one I hate. This, yeah, this is the one I hate. This is, this is the one when everybody shows up second hour instead of first hour because you <laughs> forgot to set your clock ahead and missed, missed first hour, right? <clears throat> this I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to study your word. It is your word that you have determined is the primary influence, along with the filling of the Holy Spirit, to, for our sanctification. Scripture says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Now, Father, as we come to our study of your word, we pray that we might be objective as we examine it to see how it impacts our own thinking and our own lives, that we might be ready to submit to the authority of your word, that we might have our thinking renovated as we advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 5, verse 13. And this, I believe, is the 87th lesson in the James series and the last. Unless I somehow get bogged down tonight, but we need to tackle these verses in their entirety. This is one of my favorite passages to teach simply because it is a problem passage. I always like handling Problem passages, these are passages that are problems because they're considered difficult to interpret, difficult to apply, or they've had a history 
of misinterpretation and misapplication in the church, and everybody reads them in the English, takes one look at especially something like verse 14, they immediately jump to certain conclusions and start spilling oil all over everybody, thinking that somehow that is going to affect healing. I'll never forget the first time I was teaching James, and I, I went got to this passage you know, in my study, and I went through a word study, and I came to a number of conclusions concerning what this passage taught, and that it had absolutely nothing to do with physical illness. And about six months later, a very technical article appeared in BibSac, that is, Bibliotheca Sacra, which is the theological journal published by Dallas Seminary, which, uh, and there was an article on this passage, and the guy nailed down every conclusion I had come to, but of course he had access to a vast theological library, and he had an incredible number of footnotes and references to substantiate all of his conclusions, which I had not had the privilege of, of being aware of. So it was nice to be confirmed in my interpretation of the passage that way. That's happened about five times over the last 20 years, and it's just always, always nice to, that when you're swimming upstream and going against what everybody else seems to be saying, for somebody to publish a uh, detailed scholarly article a few months later to uh, substantiate your conclusions. So we come to this passage. Now, you have to be careful with this. I, I learned a lesson early on in, in the ministry that there are people who misinterpret this, and there are correct times and there are incorrect times to, uh, to force this interpretation on people. As you'll see when we get into the text, it has nothing at all to do with physical illness or being sick. First, first week I was in my second pastorate in Irving, Texas. Uh, a young lady was pregnant and having a miscarriage. I, uh, and they called me from the hospital to come down there and anoint her with oil and pray. Now, she had already called the deacons in the church and they didn't know any better and they were already on their way down there. So that was not the time to walk in there and say, well, y'all are just full of it. This has nothing to do with what this passage says. So there are times when you just sort of suck it up and go along with it rather than uh, create too much trauma in people's lives. That's called tact. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Now, we have, in our study of James, emphasized the fact that the theme throughout this entire epistle is perseverance or endurance in times of adversity. This is introduced in James 1, 2 through 4 when James gives the first mandate of the epistle, count it all joy whenever you encounter various trials or tests, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Hupomenes, which means to bear up under, stay under, stay in the midst of adversity. We have seen that adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances on the soul and stress is the inside pressure of our wrong or sinful response or attempt to handle or deal with the outside pressure of adversity. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Adversity is what you do to yourself. I mean, adversity is what circumstances do to you, and stress is what you do to yourself. So the theme is how to endure in the midst of various testing situations, various times of adversity, various times of suffering. Now, James uh, wrapped his theme around a three-point message. That message is given in verse, verses um, uh, what, 19 
of chapter 1. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That forms his, his basic outline, that as believers we are to be quick to hear. That is, hearing the Word of God is to be a priority. We are to be ready to listen to doctrine at all times, and hearing includes application. It is not just having our ears tickled by an entertaining or amusing or, or a intellectually, or an intellectually stimulating me- message, but it is learning with a view towards application. Then he has two negative things, be slow to speak, which is a warning against the sins of the tongue, and the mental attitude sins that underlie the sins of the tongue becomes the subject of the last part of the epistle, be slow to anger. And then starting in verse 7 of chapter 5, he begins the conclusion, returning to the theme of patience and endurance. Be patient in verse 7, and then behold, a farmer waits patiently. Verse 8, you too be patient. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Verse 11, behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. So it is clear just from this immediate context that James has returned to the theme of endurance and patience. Then he comes to verse 13 and he asks three questions. Three questions. First, is anyone among you suffering? Second question, is anyone among you cheerful? That's a bad translation. Thank you. Bad translation, and we need to see what that actually says. Then the third question is, is anyone among you sick? That too is a bad translation. But we have to look at these questions in context. The context is patience and endurance. It's always important when you interpret Scripture to interpret on the basis of context. A text without a context is a pretext for some sort of false doctrine. And what happens is that normally people look at this and take it at, at first glance, according to the English, and they say, well, this, sudden, this must be teaching something about healing and physical sickness. The problem is the context doesn't suggest that at all. Where does physical illness have to do with the subject of the epistle? Well, someone might say sickness is a form of adversity. Right, but we are summing up the epistle. We are not introducing new subjects at this point. We have to look at the structure, the literary structure of the epistle. So it doesn't make sense to have introduced your theme, develop your three points, come to a conclusion to summarize and wrap it up, and then in the very last paragraph go off at a 90-degree angle to some other tangent, even though it might be stretched to be uh, relevant. So there are some issues here that we need to look at and we need to ask questions about what this really, truly means. So we have to stop and take a look at the the words underlying the text. I think that as we look at this, what I'm going to show you is that these questions are all related. The first question is your controlling question. Is anyone among you suffering? That's the theme of the epistle. Is anyone of you going through adversity? Then he gives a solution. Then he says, is anyone cheerful? Now, we will see that the word cheerful really means encouraged. So that's the positive response. This is the believer that has handled the outside pressure of suffering by applying doctrine, and he is strengthened in his soul. 
So that is one response. The other response then is the one who fails. So you have the issue of adversity. Then what do you do if you're successful? What do you do if you fail? And that is the understanding of these three opening questions in this paragraph. But first we need to take it apart in terms of the basic Greek. Was anyone among you suffering? This is the Greek word, kakopatheo, kakopatheo, which in the uh, which means to suffer physical pain, hardship, and distress, uh, to go through intense suffering. We have seen this word used in this context. If you skip back to verse 10, James said, As an example, brethren, of suffering. That word suffering there in verse 10 is the same word used in verse 13. It's the noun form, which is what I've transliterated on the overhead, kakopatheia. It's the noun form. So this tells us when we come to verse 13 that James is writing still in the same vein that he's been talking about in the previous two or three verses. He's not going off into some new subject. He is still talking about the problem of suffering and handling adversity. The principle is that the context is still still patient endurance in the midst of adversity, so we have to interpret whatever phrases we come to whenever there's a, a choice, whenever there's something that seems fuzzy or that it can go to the left or it could go to the right, that we have to let the context determine our interpretation. Now, the next word we have to investigate here is the word for cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? This is the Greek word oithemeo. Now, by looking at the English, talking about cheerful or joyful, it might be that we would expect a Greek word related to kara, joy. That's not what we find. What we find here is a word that means to be or to become encouraged and hence cheerful. Cheerful is a secondary meaning to the word. It's not the primary core meaning of this particular word. So it means at its core to be encouraged, to take courage, to become encouraged. In other words, to be strengthened in your soul. Now, whenever you hit adversity, you have a choice to make. The choice is whether or not to apply doctrine in the way you handle that problem. If you apply doctrine, the scripture says that that is the procedure for edifying your soul. The word edification means to build up or to strengthen your soul. Now, that is exactly what's happened here. Is anyone among you suffering or is anyone among you cheerful? This is the positive response, the one who has been encouraged. Now, we've asked the questions, we've defined our terms, and we've asked the questions. Now, let's look at the answers. First, is anyone among you Suffering Is anyone among you going through adversity? Response, let him pray. Now, if you've noticed, when I outline our stress busters, prayer is not a stress buster. The reason prayer is not a stress buster is prayer is a vehicle of communication with God through which we utilize several of the stress busters. So in and of itself, it's not a stress buster. It's just a vehicle for using the faith rest drill or vehicle for expressing our personal love for God or 
vehicle for expressing our occupation with Christ or our grace orientation in and of itself. It's not necessarily a stress buster. We boil those things down into their basic components. So is anyone among you facing adversity? Let him pray. Go to the Lord. This was the same solution that James had referred to back in the first chapter. If any of you lacks wisdom, and we saw there that Sophia is the application of doctrine in this passage, if any of you lacks wisdom, and in the context it is the wisdom of doctrine to apply to the test. So if you're going through a test, we saw in verses 2 through 4, and you don't know how to handle it, the solution is let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask how? By means of faith. See, there is the problem-solving device. There's the stress buster, the faith rest drill. So prayer operates on the basis of the faith rest drill. So James is simply coming back to his basic theme. Just as at the beginning, you have the issues endurance. One way of dealing with endurance and of strengthening yourself is through prayer. Same thing in verse 13, wrapping it up. The conclusions, a mirror image a reflection of the themes of the opening introduction. Anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Bad translation. Is anyone strengthened? Is anyone encouraged? Has anyone been strengthened by their positive response to the adversity? Let him sing praises. This is giving thanks to God. Praise is a a vocal expression of the gratitude in our soul. Gratitude is always a measure of of our spirituality, a barometer of our spiritual growth. We are to give thanks in all things. We are to give thanks for all things, Scripture says. So our ability to look at the adversity and to have gratitude towards God because of what it is doing reflects the fact that we have divine viewpoint of the situation and we understand what the dynamics are in adversity and stress. So is anyone encouraged? Let him sing praises. being thankful to God because of how this is being used in spiritual growth. Then we come to our third question, and this is where we get into a lot of confusion. Now, here's a picture of the strengthened soul. This is the the soul fortress. We have the entryway is 1 John 1, 9, where we go into the soul fortress. That's in the picture. You see our soul inside the fortification. When we are inside that fortification, which is tantamount to to being in fellowship, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, Christ is our protector. And we develop the bricks that make up the wall, that make up the fortification by means of learning and assimilating doctrine. So this is a picture of the cheerful, that is, the encouraged or strengthened believer. And this is in contrast to the believer that has fragmented his soul and James 1, 7, he's the Daisukos believer who is falling apart and fracturing and fragmenting and exploding all over the place. Now, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? First glance at this, everyone thinks that now we're going to learn about healing. As I've said already, there's some contextual problems with that interpretation. Secondly, there are some lexical Lexical, that's the words. There are some lexical problems in that interpretation. And third, I think there's some, just some downright practical problems with that interpretation. And very few people are willing to face 
those, those uh, practical problems. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the next verse reads, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Now, the problem that we see here is that this is expressed as an unconditional promise. The prayer offered in faith will, unconditionally, it doesn't say might, it doesn't say in most cases, it says it will restore the one who is sick. Now, what happens, unfortunately, people take this verse and they misapply this verse and they say, well, if you would just pray, if you really had faith, you would be healed. If you really trusted the Lord, you wouldn't have that cancer or leukemia or whatever it might be. You just need to trust the Lord. So the problem isn't that the Lord isn't healing you. The problem is you just don't have enough faith. Now, I always use this illustration. When I was a kid, I knew that there was something different about my mother. My mother rolled where most people walked. My mother had polio when she was um, about eight months. No, she was less than that. She was seven months pregnant, six and a half months pregnant with me. She had three kinds of polio, hepatitis, encephalitis, kidney infection, a bladder infection, and me two months early. And I have never seen her walk, except on a lot of braces that really just were very painful to, to look at how they supported her. She's been in a wheelchair all of my life. And when I was a little kid, I always thought that, that God could heal her. I mean, I believed that. Scriptures teach that that we're to pray and have faith like a child. Well, I had that kind of faith. Five years old, you don't have too much that's come into your life to teach you to be skeptical and doubtful. And I'd pray every night that God would restore my mother's ability to walk. As I got older, I realized that wasn't going to happen. I learned various, various aspects about prayer and healing and God's will and other things of that nature. But the point is that if this verse is saying what most people want it to say, then my mother should be walking. I was a believer. I was in fellowship. I understood all those dynamics when I was six, seven years old. And I completely believed that, you know, God would do it. I remember waking up in the morning, running in there a couple of times to see if she was walking. I fully expected it. Of course, Scripture teaches that you need all you need is faith like a mustard seed. You don't need a lot of faith. So the point is that a lot of people end up sort of shipwrecked in their spiritual life, disappointed, upset, because they are taught a false interpretation and false application of this passage. So we need to see what it is really saying here. We get into the text. The word translated sick here in verse 14 is the word astheneo. Astheneo. I notice I didn't transliterate that for you. Let me do that on the overhead. A-S-T-H-E-N-E-O. Astheneo. It is a compound word in the Greek. The alpha prefix is like a negative in the English. It's called the alpha privative, and it negates the word. So it's like U-N in English. Stheneo comes from a root that means strength. And so basically the root sense of this word is to be without strength, to be weak. And that is its essential core meaning. 
Now what we have to ask is in what sense of weakness is this passage talking about? So just for your edification, I decided to cut into the uh, overhead here the picture of what that looks like in the Greek dictionary in Art and Gingrich. What that uh, does is give you several meanings. The first meaning is right here. Literally, it means of bodily weakness, to be sick. And if you notice, it lists various passages up here where it is used to mean physical sickness. Matthew 25:39, Luke 7, 10, uh, John 4, 46, 11, 1, 2, 3, 6, Philippians 2, and so forth. It even includes James 14. I disagree with it on that point. That's, uh, if you notice, though, most of those passages and I figured it out one time in about 68%, somewhere 68, 70% of the times that this word is used in the Gospels, it means physically sick. But when you get into the epistles, it flip-flops. It shifts from the majority of uses is referring to physical sickness to spiritual or moral weakness. That's the second meaning of the word. It means to be weak in faith. To be weak in faith or to be weak economically, to be in need. So these are the three basic meanings of asthenao or, or the noun asthenes. And from that we have to decide when you come to a passage, you have to determine well, what, is, what kind of weakness are we talking about in the passage. Are we talking about a physical weakness or are we talking about a spiritual weakness? Now, let's look at a couple of examples. Matthew 25, 44, Jesus says, or the Scripture says, Then they themselves also will answer, I think that Jesus is speaking here, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick? Asthenes, right there, sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. There's an example of where this word means sickness. But then look down at Matthew 26, 41. Jesus said to the disciples, this is the night they are at Gethsemane and he is praying. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is asthenia. The flesh is weak. He's not saying the flesh is sick. He's saying it is spiritually weak. It is uh, spiritually impotent. There is a spiritual inability that comes because of a lack of doctrine or a lack of application of doctrine or reliance upon the Holy, Holy Spirit. Same thing is true, 1 Corinthians 11.30. For this reason among you, many are weak and sick. See, the second word for sick there is a word for physically sick. The first word weak is asthenao, and it means to be spiritually impotent, to be spiritually weak. And then a number sleep, and that is a euphemism for a believer who has died physically. So this word has a range of meanings, and its core meaning is weak, and you have to determine from the context whether it means to be physically weak or spiritually weak. Now let's see if we can get any other clues from the passage to determine how we ought to interpret asthenao in verse 14. Look down to verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. 
Now, the English uses sick in verse 15 and sick in verse 14. However, it shouldn't surprise you that they're two different words in the Greek. And it is the second word in verse 15 that is a more precise word and that it does help us understand what asthaneo means in verse 14. See, we're talking about the same person. So, the restoration of the one who is sick, if, if that word doesn't mean physically sick, then the word back in verse 14 doesn't mean physically sick. So, it's going to narrow our focus. So, let's see what it is. It's the Greek word komno, K-A-M-N-O, komno. Komno means basically to be weary or exhausted. Now, in classical Greek, it did mean sick or ill or even dead. But it is not used anywhere in the Greek New Testament to mean physically ill or dead. In fact, if you'll hold your place here in James chapter 5 and turn back just about five or six pages to your left, to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll see how it is used in a very similar context to James 5. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is, all of the Old Testament saints who exercised the faith rest drill, believed and applied doctrine, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us And let us run with endurance. What do you think is the subject matter of Hebrews 12 now? It's endurance. Hupomone, same word we find in James. So now we see that these are connected in terms of subject matter. We run with endurance, the race that is set before us. Now how do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So this is occupation with Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and completer of faith, of doctrine, who for the joy set before him, inner happiness, motivated him, inner happiness set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, that is Jesus Christ, who has endured. Now this is the third time we've run across Hupomone, so obviously... You must conclude that uh, the basic subject matter of these verses is endurance in the spiritual life. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not, come no, grow weary. You see, here we have the same word that we have in James 5 in a similar context of endurance, And it makes clear that the subject matter of Komno is avoiding weariness or spiritual failure or spiritual impotence in the midst of adversity. In other words, using human viewpoint problem-solving techniques instead of divine problem-solving devices or stress busters to handle the problem. Now turn back to James 5. We see in verse 15, the prayer offered... And faith will restore the one who is komno, who is weary. Now, we have a new translation here that's a little more accurate. Is anyone among you facing adversity? Let him pray. Is anyone among you, is anyone encouraged, strengthened? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you weary? 
Is anyone among you weak spiritually? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will lift up or strengthen the one who is weary, and the Lord will lift him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, if you look at the last part of that verse, suddenly you begin to realize that that maybe we're talking about something different than physical sickness, because as soon as you introduce the concept of sin, you realize that what had happened is that this person has been converting the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Their soul is fragmenting. It's compounding itself inside their soul. They're a Daisukas believer, double-minded, unstable in all their ways, and they're reached a point where they're incapable of going forward. They're overwhelmed by depression, by discouragement, by failure. And so this is giving God's solution here, and it is related to the use of faith rest drills specifically manifested in prayer. Now, another thing we need to look at, if we understand these words, is, is some of the words for restoration that are used in the passage. Verse 15, we read, The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The word there for restore is an interesting word in the Greek. It's one that should be familiar to most of you. It looks like this. In the Greek, S-O-Z-O, long O, sozo. It means to deliver, and it means to save. Some places it can mean to heal physically. The root meaning is to deliver. You always have to look at the context to see what the uh, person or what the situation is, what, what you're delivered from. This is the root word for salvation, for Soteriology, for soter. All of those words come from the verb sozo. So the prayer offered in faith will, and here's a clear example, If those of you who remember our study of James 2, where we showed that when when, uh, James asked the question, what use is it? My brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? that we said that James does not use the word sozo in this epistle like we do when we say, are you saved? Meaning, are you going to heaven? He uses the word in the sense of realizing the fullness of our spiritual life and the blessings that God has for us as we advance to spiritual maturity. So when we come to verse 15 and we read the, the prayer of faith will restore sozo, This is talking about realizing maturity in the spiritual life. That's how James uses sozo. And then it says the Lord will raise him up. This is the future uh, tense of agero. It's agairo is the future tense, irregular verb of agero, meaning to lift, to raise, to lift up, to restore, to stimulate or awaken. So we have a picture of probably a carnal believer, maybe a reversionist believer who is completely away from the Lord, fragmenting his soul, and then he turns back, but he really doesn't have the strength on his own because he has so blown it in his spiritual life that he calls other believers to pray for him. Now, we've looked at the verb restore is sozo, raise up is a gyro, and then uh, the last word that we will look at is the word 
for heal down in verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And this is the Greek word hiaomai. It's a rough breathing mark at the beginning. So it's H-I-A-O-M-A-I. Hiaomai. And it means its core meaning is to recover. It's just like asthenase. It can refer to any kind of recovery, even though most of the time it is used of physical recovery from illness. But the root meaning is simply recovery or restoration, and it is used in a couple of passages for spiritual recovery. John 12:40. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart. This is a spiritual problem. So that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. There, hiaomai is used not of healing diseases, but of recovery from the spiritual problem of spiritual death and salvation. And the same word is used when it talks about by Jesus' death we are healed over in 1 Peter chapter 1. So it has to do with spiritual recovery. So the verb sozo, agairo, and hiaomai all emphasize recovery. And this is the recovery solution for the believer who has failed in spiritual, uh, facing spiritual tested, testings, tried to solve problems on his own, and he is to pray. Now let's go back to the solution in verse 14. That has some interesting dynamics as well. Is anyone among you sick or weary? Is anyone among you weary? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, when we come to this passage, we have to ask a couple of interesting interpretive questions. One revolves around the fact that this was the very first epistle written in the New Testament. First and second Timothy were not revealed yet. In fact, I don't think you had a, a Gentile church firmly established at this point. Remember, we've emphasized the fact that when James wrote this epistle, back in verse 1 he said, I write this to the twelve tribes who are dispersed. This was the, the Jewish dispersion. He is writing to Jewish believers. He is not writing to the ecclesia of God, to the church of God in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we saw in verse 2 of chapter 2, that he raises the issue about prejudice in the congregation. And he said, if a man comes into your assembly, again, he doesn't use the word ecclesia for church. He uses the word synagogue, synagogue, because he's dealing with primarily a group of, of Jewish believers and a primarily Jewish congregation that is operating very early in the church age, and they haven't really converted over to a New Testament ecclesiology yet. So he calls for the elders of the church, and he uses the word ecclesia here. This is the first time he uses the word, but it just I don't think it's used in a technical sense here, since he's because of the reasons I've already mentioned, ecclesia has as its root meaning just the assembly. And elders here, since there hasn't been any clear, clear revelation about the breakdown of the leadership in the church yet in terms of pastor, elder, presbyteros, uh, bishop, episkopos, and pastor, poimenos, all refer to the leader of the church. Those are all synonyms. 
Now, I can imagine that if it was the role of the pastor, if that's what he had in mind here, and every time anybody had a little trouble dealing with adversity in their life, it was a, they were to call the pastor to come pray and anoint them with oil, the pastor wouldn't get any studying done. Even if you take the interpretation from an elder viewpoint, from a Presbyterian viewpoint, that a church should be governed by a body of elders, a plurality of elders, you're still talking about no more than four or five men, unless you're in an enormous congregation. You're talking about no more than four or five men. And they would be kept pretty busy running around with a bottle of oil, uh, sprinkling it on everybody and taking and praying for everybody. I think that the root meaning of presbyteros is elderly or mature. And I think the point of this is that they are to call for those who are spiritually mature in the congregation to pray for them. This is why we are to pray for one another, Scripture says. So, in one sense, you're going to sort of piggyback on somebody else's spiritual maturity and use them, in a sense, for a crutch. And this is only, only fitting, I think, for someone who has become a spiritual cripple. And this is, in effect, what's happened with the person who has let adversity overwhelm them, refused to apply doctrine. Now they have fallen apart in their life, and they're, they're spiritually inept. They're a spiritual cripple, and they need to have somebody come alongside and encourage them. Scripture says we are to parakaleo, encourage one another, which means to come alongside. We're to encourage one another, strengthen one another. And one way in which we do that is to pray for them. Now, today, we don't anoint them with oil. We don't anoint them with oil. Now, this word in the Greek looks like this. There are two words in the Greek, two verbs, expressing the concept of anointing. Two different verbs. The first is alepho. Looks like this in the Greek. A-L-E-I-P-H-O. And the second word looks like this. C-H-R-I-O. Now, this second word, creo, is the root verb from which we get the noun, anointed one, Christos. So, it is this word that is used of spiritually significant anointing. When it talks about the anointing with the Holy Spirit, which is just another word, John's word, for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit... When we see that word in talk, uh, used in 1 John, it is talking about a spiritually significant anointing, and he uses the word creo. But this word alepho has to do with the everyday function of rubbing oil on your skin. In that climate, in the dry climate of the Middle East, it was the normal operating procedure of every person to, to put oil on their face. Uh, often, uh, usually today, you'll find that, that ladies will put cream on their face every evening before they go to bed to keep the skin moist and, and uh, to hydrate it and so that it'll still look 30 when they're 60, and, uh, or hopefully. And that is the same thing that's happening uh, here. It is the concept of anointing themselves with oil. It was part of their daily toiletry. We would say, take a shower, go clean up. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about the Pharisees. 
And he says the Pharisees had a habit of fasting and praying, but when they fasted, they would put on their old dirty clothes and they wouldn't take a shower. And guess what? They wouldn't anoint themselves with oil, a lepho. They wouldn't go through the daily practices of putting oil in their hair, oil in their skin, so that they would look used up, tired, worn out. They must be spiritual, people would say. Look, they're fasting. They're so holy. Look how hard it is on them. And Jesus says, if you're going to fast and pray, don't be like the Pharisees, but anoint yourself daily so that people don't know you're doing it. Because you're doing it to, 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 for, for spiritual reasons and not to impress men. That was the subject matter. So, so what's happening here is that as a result of of discouragement and depression and fragmentation of the soul, this person has gotten down to a point where they just don't care enough about their their daily activities. In our culture, they, this would be a person who maybe is so depressed they're not getting out of bed or they're, they're not really taking the time to, to wash their clothes and to put on clean clothes or take a bath regularly. And, you know, even if you take a bath regularly but you don't wash your clothes, you're still going to stink. So you need to both take a bath and regularly wash your clothes so that you don't offend anybody. And uh, so you don't go around looking like you're, you're all discouraged and down and out. And that's what they were doing. So the, the point here is that this has a cultural interpretation. We have to interpret the passage in light of the time in which it was written. And this is a person who is really fe- feeling very defeated in life, and so a mature believer comes, helps them with the daily activities. Uh, one of the things that if you, if you go out and you go to any kind of stress management seminar, of course, we're not managing stress, we're avoiding stress, but they'll tell you you need to exercise. The value of exercise, what it does to the chemicals in the brain that pick you up and make you feel better, and all that's important. It's important to work out, it's important to get up, take a shower, comb your hair, put on clean clothes. All of that affects your mental attitude and your mental outlook. And so that's what's going on here. It's facing the spiritual realities through prayer and then giving them... ...start doing, such as get up, uh, walk, uh, exercise, eat right things of that nature. That's how we would bring that over into our culture. So is anyone among you spiritually weary and defeated? Let him call for those who are mature in the congregation. Let them pray over him and anoint him with oil, the daily activity of toiletries in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will deliver, restore the one who is weary And the Lord will lift him up. Ultimately, the solution is the Lord's. He is the one who provides the solution. The the divine solution is the only solution, and the human solution is no solution. And if he has committed sin, see, when you get into converting outside adversity into the inside pressure of stress, you're under sin nature control. So this is the sense that if he has committed sins, and he has, they will be forgiven him. 1 John 1, nine. there needs to be in this process recovery. That's why the starting point getting into the, the uh, fortress, the soul fortress is 1 John 1, nine. That's where you recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that now you have, through the filling of the Holy Spirit and learning doctrine, the ability 
to face and handle the outside pressure of adversity. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Verse 16, another passage that is misapplied frequently in terms of some kind of public confession of sin. The word for confess here is the same word that's in John, 1 John 1, 9, homo legeo, which means to admit or acknowledge your sins. Therefore, admit or acknowledge your sins to one another. Simple point is that whenever you get in a situation where you're converting outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul, what you're going to do is you're going to commit a host of mental attitude sins and sins of the tongue. We've already seen that in James chapter 3 and James chapter 4. They're at war with one another. They're there are conflicts and quarrels and all kinds of problems. And so they've probably done enough to one another to where it's time for them to have a little privacy with one another and apologize. Say that, uh, well, I did that and I'm uh, really sorry I did that. And there's a place for that. This is not talking about confession for fellowship with God. This is talking about the fact that there are times when we offend and we hurt one another and it is the right thing to do to apologize. It's just good manners and courtesy to apologize. And then to pray for one another. And there are many different things in the Scriptures that teach that we are to have a mutual ministry toward one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to love one another. We're to encourage one another. We are to teach one another. There is a mutual ministry. One another is not every believer, though. The term one another is different from saying Love every believer. We're to love one another. It's those that are in our context, those that are in our environment, those with whom we, we live and we go to church and we work with. Those are the ones that this is referring to. Don't get on some kind of obsessive compulsive kick that you're going to go out and try to love every single believer you see or that you're going to try to teach every believer you see. There are some guys in seminary who try to do that. Um, but this is just the mutual ministry of how you deal with personal relationships. If you offend somebody, you hurt them, you apologize. You pray for one another. There is mutual love for one another. This goes back to the mention in James chapter 2 of the royal law, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And that includes, at least to believers, uh, apologizing when necessary in prayer for one another, so that you may be restored so that you may recover and go forward in the spiritual life. And then we're given the closing principle that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. The emphasis here is their prayer. When you're praying correctly, that means you're in fellowship, you're applying doctrine, your prayer is doctrinally correct, you're relying upon God the Holy Spirit, then that prayer will be answered. Now, in verses 17 and 18, we have an illustration of this principle from the Old Testament, specifically from 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. In that context, you have Elijah going to Ahab, who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Ahab has led the nation into idolatry. And if you remember from our study of Old Testament on, on Sunday morning... There are various curses that are outlined in Leviticus 28, or Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, outlining what God will do to the nation if they go into idolatry and rebel against Him. Part of that included turning the sky into bronze and the earth to iron. 
In other words, there would be drought in the sky, and so the earth would dry up and would not produce uh, its, its crops. Now, Elijah says, Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. There was nothing special about Elijah. He is just as human as the rest of us. He had a sin nature like the rest of us. And one of the most encouraging things about Elijah is right after he has his greatest victory on uh, uh, Mount Carmel, he turns around and he has a pity party and he says, you know, Lord, everything's going down. He just gets depressed. And, uh, and God has to remind him that, no, Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So just no matter how great you are spiritually, you can always blow it and fail. And dealing with failure in spiritual leaders is part of what's called grace orientation. Elijah, we're reminded, was a man of nature like ours. He is just as prone to failure in spiritual crises as any of us. He was a man of, like, of nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the emphasis that James is giving is, look, Elijah prayed and got an answer to his prayer. And just as Elijah prayed and got God's answer, so you can pray in the times of adversity and God will answer your prayer. Elijah was facing a time of testing and adversity in the nation of Israel. The interesting thing is that if the subject of 13 through 16, now pay attention. I'm going to tie this up for you. If... 13 through 16 is talking about physical healing. Then why is it that James went to the first half of 1 Kings 17 for his illustration and not the second half of 1 Kings 17 for his illustration? If James had just looked at the second half of that chapter, he would have realized that Elijah, who is now staying with the widow of Zarephath, that she had a young child, a son... And that son died. And God told Elijah to lie down on his body and spread himself out on top of the body of that son and to pray. And that child, God would restore him to life. So if the subject is physical healing, why doesn't he go to 1 Kings 17, 18 and following the second half of the chapter instead of the first half of the chapter? Clue. He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual endurance in times of crisis. And then James wraps it up as abruptly as he began. says, My brethren, indicating he is still talking to believers, if any among you strays from the truth, that is, departs doctrine, quits using the stress busters to solve the problems in their life, and one of you turns him back. Now, this doesn't justify getting involved in everybody else's business. We all have friends. We all have family members. We have close people within our circle of intimacy that are believers. And every now and then, those people are going to blow it. A husband, a wife, a friend, whatever it is, they're going to be in adversity and we're going to look at them and we're going to see that they are just absolutely in carnality and really screwing up. And we're going to say, hey, you have a responsibility to get back, start applying doctrine, straighten up. And that's all this is talking about. This is not saying that you're going to look across the congregation and see somebody that you think is doing something you shouldn't do, and you're going to run over there and get involved where you don't even have a relationship and start telling them how to straighten out their life. That's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is within the context of those 
relationships that you have, there are times when we are going to encourage one another by pointing back in the right direction. And if they do turn back, it says, let him know that he who turns a sinner, that is the person operating on the sin nature, converting adversity and distress, that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul. It's not talking about salvation at phase one justification. If it were, then turning from our sin would be how to be saved. But Scripture says the way you're saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. It's not whether or not you turn from your sin. So here's another example of how sozo is used in this passage for discovering everything that God has for our life in phase two, growing to spiritual maturity. will save his soul from death, that is temporal death, carnality, the sin unto death, and will cover, and that is will avoid a multitude of sins. Why? Because now they're back in fellowship. They're handling adversity through the application of doctrine and the stress busters, and they are going forward in the spiritual life. Well, that wraps up our study of James. James testing adversity, avoiding stress. Now, we've learned a lot about the spiritual life. We've dealt with some very difficult passages over the last almost two years. 87 lessons, and next time we're going to come back and start a new series. It's going to be sort of an introduction to uh, the spiritual life. I need to kill two or three birds with one stone so I don't fragment myself everywhere. I've never done a detailed study of Romans 6 through 8, which is dealing with sanctification. I have to teach that in Kazakhstan next August. So, as usual, I'm going to get, let you be the guinea pigs. And we're going to do the detail work. And once I do all the detail work, then I can synthesize it down and teach uh, those three chapters in three hours. But first, we'll teach those three chapters in about three months. So we can't get, I can't get in too much detail in Romans 6 through 8 because I've got to finish it before I go to Kazakhstan in July. So, we will uh, break it down and move through the core of Romans starting next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your tremendous revelation in Your Word and how it tells us what the real issues in life are, how to solve problems, face adversity, avoid self-destruction through the control of the sin nature, and to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged by the things that we have studied, have the objectivity to see how they relate to our lives, and that we would be positively responsive to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.